Hi, and welcome to Practical Reliability. I'm George Williams. And I'm Joe Anderson. Joe, we've got um, we've got a Canadian on, on the podcast today, and he's um, someone we've known for a really long time. And we'll just kind of give him a, a, a great intro. So um, our guest today is Mr. Paul Doust. And Paul is the founder of CO Asset Management. He's got over 25 years experience in asset management and operational excellence in the energy sector. Uh, and Paul is waging war on mediocrity through learning, coaching, advising, and consulting services with enterprise operational management framework solutions. He's a leading Canadian and international advocate for asset management in global communities. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. So, Paul, um, we had some some brief conversations before we got started. And, you know, what we want to talk about today and focus in on is kind of right in your wheelhouse. It's it's decision making. Absolutely. What is decision making? Well, the way I define decision making, it's choices made under conditions of uncertainty and complexity. And of course, those can vary depending on the situation. But the, the real key is to apply the correct amount of rigor in order to get to more better decisions. I mean, you don't have to be perfect in your decision making. That's not really um, practical. But if you can make more better decisions in the future than you did in the past, then you should see performance improvement. And that applies to leadership as well as practitioners. I have 50 follow-up questions to that. <laughs> there were so many points in that brief sentence that just drove me absolutely bonkers. Um, and so let's try to tackle some of them. One what that I thought was interesting was you said you don't have to be perfect. And I think what we see a lot of times is people hesitate to make decisions because they're so focused on is it right and what's the level of risk they're comfortable with that they either are stagnant and don't make any decisions or they make decisions with little or no information. And so they're not good decisions. Like you mentioned, can you talk about those two things? Yeah. I, the, the couple things come to mind. I mean, the, the word uncertainty in the definition, one of the things that I learned, I guess the hard way is we, we tend to make decisions when we choose, when we actually do take that action uh, based on our knowledge or what we believe to be true. And of course we do, right? But very often we ignore our uncertainty around that knowledge. And, and what I've learned is to make a proper decision, you need to factor in both your knowledge or what you think you know, because you're not always right, but then also that uncertainty around that, because especially if you're evaluating different options, it's the uncertainty around those that helps you differentiate which is the better um, course of action to take. Now, when it comes to not making decisions, you know, um, there are decisions of commission and decisions of omission, which is when you don't make decisions and you should. So, you know, I, I think, you know, there's 39 subjects of asset management. And what I try to do is I codify those 39 subjects in a way to, to, to draw out well, what are the important decisions and how should they best be made at every opportunity. And if you do that, if you don't, I guess another way to think of it is if you don't ask the question, what decision should I be making and when, then yeah, you can miss the opportunity to make decisions. And if that's the case, then life's a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> 
That's awesome. So give me an example, Paul, give me, give me an example of one of those 39 points and decisions that people have to make every day and kind of interrelate what you're talking about to that process. Yeah. I mean, I look, I pick out four discrete practices that are very decision intensive that every organization does. Most don't do it that well, but they seem oddly satisfied. And, you know, those are strategy deployment, operations, risk management, asset performance management, and asset investment planning. So specifically, I'll talk about the last one, asset investment planning. So that's that's where we make our key run repair replacement decisions that informs our, our sustaining capital spend. And, you know, generally what tends to happen there is our people have a prioritization scheme where, you know, they either do this project or they don't do the project. And sure, they'll risk assess it, but it, it's really a single point estimate of risk. Um, but a better way to do that is to have a fully quantitative and optimized um, evaluation of multiple uh, options or alternatives uh, pegged against multiple objectives. Could be financial, either production or cost or safety, you know, and, and that's, it's a little bit more elaborate and there's some math involved, but that's one example of a decision type where, you know, if you set it up as a framework, then, then you can kind of leapfrog straight to best practice. And that's one of the uh, one of the things that I've noticed is uh, if if you kind of deconstruct the decision making process, you can evaluate well which are better decisions um, or ways to make decisions than others. And you know you can kind of track your decisions, and I think that's important and something we don't do. Yeah, no doubt. So um, let's kind of go from the top down here. How how does leadership strategy? translate into decision making at the next layer down well look i think the job to be done for for leaders is the deployment of their scarce and vast resources that's that's and to create value from their assets right so how you deploy your your finite financial resources and your people resources with their capabilities you know that's that's the job to be done and the the strategy deployment is a key um, decision process where, you know, what I've observed is very often there's, there's actually really good strategy at the C-suite level. Um, but the challenge is to actually deploy that down through the operations group in a way that kind of maintains alignment and maximizes the utility of those of those resources, right? And if you don't do it well, what can happen is there's a lot of misalignment resulting in ineffectiveness and inefficiencies in those resources. And so, again, you don't need to be perfect, but if you can do a, a bit more deliberate job of how you make those decisions, um, you, can, you can better utilize those resources to create more value from the same assets with, with fewer resources. And I think sometimes that translation gets lost, right? People, as you mentioned earlier, make decisions based on their knowledge and experiences, and they're not necessarily asking themselves, A, if that decision is in alignment with that higher overarching strategy, and B, what are the alternatives or you know consequences of making one decision versus another? They're just sticking with what's in their wheelhouse, right? 
right? And and very often, you know, um, practitioners I've observed, there can be a, a difference in risk risk tolerance and appetite. And so, you know, the engineers might be trying to, you know, eliminate the risk. And so they are promoting and recommending you know, high spend options, and that might not be what the organization wants or needs, right? So, you know, that alignment, maybe the strategy is to go for low cost, right? And if that's the case, that might, that might cause different, different alternative um, to be selected in the decision making process. So again, that's kind of the, the objectives and the alignment around around that and it's it's really tricky to to maintain and sustain that alignment throughout the organization what one of the other challenges is the lower you go in the organization like i said there's usually pretty good strategy at, at the at the top of the organization but it kind of falls down as you cascade it through the organization and you end up having lots of um what i call skunk works uh, which are things that people want to do and you very often you see this that dynamic between corporate head office and, and site um, where the strategy is deployed through head office, yet site wants to do its own thing. And look, skunk works can be good in some ways, but it's not necessarily aligned um, with the overall strategy. So, um, and, you know, by doing these skunk work activities that takes away um, resources that could be used for, for things that are in alignment, right? Um, I guess the other thing from the leadership perspective, you know, there's always more initiatives than, than there are resources to kind of um, make happen. And, you know, I think a lot of times there needs to be a better job done of putting all of those ideas on the table and seeing how much capacity and capability the organization has to get those things done and, and make sure that only only the few that are important um, and timely uh, and match that strategy get selected. Excellent. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, just to get down to the ground floor here a little bit. A lot of times what we see are either folks not, folks are unsure who has the decision rights and so there's not really a, a good racy in place or any other type of structure that would say, okay, you're here to provide information and, and Paul has the decision. Mm-hmm. And so we collectively give Paul our insights and Paul gets to ponder that and make a decision. But we tend to go on and on meeting after meeting, trying to get some consensus of what to do. Talk to me about those two different approaches and what they mean for the efficiency of the organization and the success of the organization. Yeah, that's that's a very good point you make, George. Um, you know what what I've observed is you know I'll look at this from two different perspectives: one from a leadership and another from practitioners. Leaders very often put themselves in you know in in front and center and in the line of fire of these decisions. And I remember earlier in my career, I had a new leader come in and he, he told us engineers, he said, you guys tell us the problems and make a recommendation and we'll make the decisions. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound unreasonable, but the, the, the challenge is you can't surface every problem to the leader. I mean, they just can't, they can't do that. And, you know, we talk a good game about accountability and how leadership makes the decisions. And, you know, that's not untrue, but 
you know, if you're going to try to achieve operational excellence, you, you need to push the decision making down in the organization as, as far as appropriate. I mean, you don't want people and practitioners specifically making decisions that's not aligned with their accountabilities. But when, when you talk about accountabilities and, you know, my work with PMAC on the board there over the years, um, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of practitioners in a lot of different industries. And I, I kind of got into the habit of talking about accountability. And it was very interesting to me when, when you first talk about accountability and what are you accountable for? Inevitably the, you know, the practitioner will say, well, here's the tasks that I do. Right. But what I started to do is I started to change it as I kind of became more aware of the importance of good decision making. I started asking, but what, what decisions are you accountable for? And it was fascinating because the eyes would kind of get big and you could tell it was a different line of thinking. And then they would, they would have to kind of reassess and, 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 and basically it boiled down to, well, I don't, I'm not really capable of making any decisions myself, but here's how I contribute to decisions. And you're right. There, there, there's not a lot of clarity on who makes the ultimate decision and and who contributes and what are their roles so that's part of what i try to do is bring a little bit of rigor and formality to that and you know not too much you know as much as necessary as little as possible because i I believe in the minimum effective dose but i've come to believe that you need a little bit of structure and discipline around decision making and and you know to to kind of summarize the book the bookends you you can't have every decision surface to leadership and you need to be clear and concise about what what the contributions are of the practitioners and what decisions they can support and and make on their own. Yeah, no no doubt. And and so if you're talking to leadership, how do you convince them that they should, you know, I, you know, I guess empowerment is the is not really the right word. It's it's putting the decision where it belongs, right, in the hands of the experts who are charged with delivering the results of your strategy. And so how do you communicate to them if they have a longstanding history of, you know, having to make all the decisions or not trusting that their folks will make the right decisions? Yeah, look, I, that's, that's something that's really hard to influence. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot of research on kind of the classical, um, command and control type leadership style, um, um, you know, where, yeah, the leaders want to be put in that position where they make all the decisions. And, and look, I don't know that those, that style of management is really going to be influenced, but for those kind of, you know, I read a lot in Harvard business review and, and, um, um, MIT Sloan about this new style of leadership that's very inclusive and and emotionally intelligent and they, they want to create a culture where they do push down and and have have people become more engaged and more empowered to do that. So look, I, I think for those for those leaders who are willing to kind of do that, um, I think that's where the opportunity is. Um, it's really hard to change somebody's style or the culture of an organization, even though there's a lot of talk about it, um, because culture is ultimately what's earned um, in the way organizations treat people. So that doesn't turn on a dime. Um, that's only influenced um, over time with, with you know, how leadership acts and behaves. So. 
Um, not a great answer, but you know, I'm always look, looking to work with those new and progressive and courageous leaders who are willing to try something different. And of course, leadership needs to recognize that the status quo isn't going to get any better improved results. So there needs to be that business challenged so that the status quo is no longer acceptable, um, which will precipitate, you know, um, change. So tricky situation, but, you know, I, I think the organization's ready to do these things or it's, it's not ready yet. And I think you're, you're, you're on to a lot of things here that kind of make what you do so valuable. So th that shift in, um, you know, I would say more inclusion and collaborative effort is now going to make it even more important that um, acceptance of risk and knowledge that you're not always going to be right, but directionally correct and taking a step is better than perfection and not taking a step yet, right? Right. And, and, that's and the more you do that, the more you shift to that cultural model of inclusion and getting everyone on board and collaboration, you also have to couple that with the acceptance that we're not always going to be perfect. Absolutely. And it needs to be a safe place to, to fail occasionally. Right. But again, um, you know, uh, if, if you do apply the appropriate level of structure and rigor around your decision making, um, I do believe that you will improve and, and you can measure those improvements. Right. So, yeah, you're not going to be perfect, but you want to make more better decisions than you used to. That's the key to success. Yeah, I, I, I think. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, I just I think from what I find from my experience is the fact that no one wants to make a decision. and. I think a lot of that comes from one, their own lack of, of knowledge within their own position, which doesn't give them the confidence, you know, plus the lack of data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times worrying about consensus. I've always said that those that make decisions, whether they're right or wrong, are the ones that people follow because they're the ones setting direction, setting a path and, and normally getting results. And so... You know, I just, I see it a lot on our end, at least that people don't even want to make a decision. It's always passing the buck or, yep. you know, doing, you know, moving it to this guy or that guy or, or, and then you go talk to the next guy up or the next guy over. And he says, we'll go back to that guy. And it's a big circle <laughs> where, you know, I've always been the type that I'm moving forward. I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm headed. Um, and, and we go, you know, and so it's, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know, whether it was right or wrong in the decisions I made, I wasn't afraid to fail because I knew that, you know, it's, it's part of the learning experience. Um, but I also spent a ton of time trying to become the best at what I do so that I have the confidence in making the right decisions that align with the organizational objectives. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a few good points there, right? I, I think decision-making requires a certain amount of courage, uh, for sure. But, you know, one of the things that you touched on is going back to that idea of uncertainty. One of the pieces of advice I like to give both leaders and practitioners is get comfortable with uncertainty. Because, you know, engineers and technical people, they want all the data and they want the data to be perfect. 
before they make a decision. But very often that's not on the table. That's just not possible. So you have to, you have to recognize, well, how uncertain is the knowledge that I have available to me? Right. So mm-hmm. we, we make decisions on the best available knowledge, but then we need to understand, well, what's our uncertainty around that knowledge? And that also informs our decision. So, you know, and that was that was a big change for me is once I realized that your uncertainty is an important factor in and of itself, that you need to characterize it. And just to make it practical, like if we're doing, if we're want, we need to make a decision on, you know, run repair replacement decision for an asset, very often I'll say to the engineer, well, what information would you, that you don't have today, would you like to have, right? So what inspections, what testing would, would improve your, uh, or reduce your uncertainty? And very often they're able to articulate that. And the cool thing is, with certain techniques like the quantitative types, you can actually quantify the value of that that new information to reduce your uncertainty. But but even just knowing here's what we know and here's what we don't know that we would like to know um, characterizes your uncertainty. And I, I think it gives people a better sense of comfort that you can go forward and make a decision based on those two things, right? But mm-hmm. if you ignore the uncertainty part, that's, I think, that's that paralyzing piece because leaders want to know how uncertain um, um, the people making the recommendations are. I've, I've seen that firsthand. And once I recognized there, there was this leader that I had, this engineering leader who was notorious for, for, you know, just grilling people. And, and, and it clicked for me at one time, he wasn't really challenging that person professionally. What he was really trying to do was understand that person's uncertainty in, in the recommendation he was, he, was, he was given. And once I understood that, I was totally fine with it. Um, but, you know, that uncertainty is, is a very important point that we often ignore. Yeah. So one other challenge I think people face, Paul, is that, that sometimes those that are supposed to make the decision, I don't want to say delegate, they defer so that they don't have to suffer any consequences of that decision. Yeah. How do you how do you coach both those leader, leaders that hesitate because of either lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of the uncertainties um, and those that are being deferred to when their role is really recommendations and information, not necessarily the decision? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, let's face it, we've all seen people point the finger after a decision doesn't go right. So right. Um, which should be an acceptable entity but isn't always right and so how do you coach those folks oh that's that's good i a couple things come to mind um the first one going back to accountability to be clear on what are the what are the decisions to be made and how are they to be made i mean that was the really key moment for me that was my eureka moment when i i realized the most important decision you make is how you make your decisions and if if you deconstruct those if you identify the important decisions and then answer the question how should they best be made all those who where what why when things um they they surface and if you don't ask that then you do run that risk of decisions not being made when they should be made so for me it's an accountability thing and Look, to get people to want to step up to that accountability, I I think you need to point to the results. 
Um, and, and very often in these organizations, you know, their operational performance is second, third quartile. And I, I, I believe that perhaps the largest single component of that, that performance loss or what I call value leakage is because we're not making optimal decisions as often as we need to. So again, you need to convince the person that we need to step up and make more better decisions in order for them to want to change. But then when you put the right, put the decisions in front of them and, and, and have clarity on who does what, when, then you can have a, and with a little bit of structure, then you can say, okay, the engineer needs to provide this portion of the knowledge for the decision and also the uncertainty and the person making the decision, guess what? It's you, um, maintenance leader or uh, engineering leader or operations leader, um, then, then they've got, it's right in front of them, right? You have, you have to set, you have to recognize the decisions to be made in order to, to understand that it has to be made, right? So um, that can be tricky, but I think that's part of what we need to do. Because if you don't ask the questions, you're not going to, you're not going to take action when it's needed. Well, it sounds like, you know, the goal here is to develop a process. And the problem in most organizations is that processes don't exist. And that's why they can't make decisions. <laughs> and, and they end up pointing the finger at people because of a lack of process. Right. And so Absolutely. when something occurs, and somebody decides to say, well, no one's making a decision, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Let's go and we go do it. And it doesn't work out because there is no processes and people start blaming that person for taking the risk and at least trying to do something instead of doing nothing. Right. And I think it's not just a decision making process that organizations lack. It's almost all processes. (laughs) There's no structure really, you know, I guess chaos is a system in and of itself, a system of processes, but it's not the best practice that you would want to be implementing. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I like to do where possible, and it doesn't always work um, perfectly, but is to set up a systematic uh, way of discovering what decisions need to be made and when that's kind of what I was alluding to before. But when it comes down to the actual decision-making process, I like to, use what I call decision frameworks. And you can set up a framework for each decision type, right? So look, in those 39 subjects of asset management, there's a finite number of decision types that need to be made. And you can set up a decision framework for each of those types. And what's more important though, is a very simple and structured way of problem solving and decision making. And what I like to promote is the A3 methodology which was popularized by Toyota in, 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 um, in the Toyota production system. And what I like about it is not only does it kind of force whoever's using it to go through the proper steps of problem solving and decision making, but it's all done on one page. So, you know, no matter what the complexity is of the problem, it can still be reflected at one page. Now, there might be a tremendous amount of, you know, um, data and analysis that, that supports that. But at the end of the day, it forces 
whoever's using that to be very clear and concise about what the problem is, what the options are, what the decisions are, what what benefits and, and, and value you expect out of it. And it's all kind of on one page. So that's kind of the simple process that I use. But the cool thing for me is you can actually apply that A3 methodology for each of those decision types. So the template and the questions are kind of the same, but the content and what you expect is adjusted for each decision type. And that's really what, you know, I'm trying to offer uh, in terms of decision um, frameworks and dis and decision models for each of those types and make it really, really simple. And all you need to do is, is fill in this, this template and, and, you know, you can, you can, you can, if you do it in an intelligent way, you don't need a lot of um, documented business processes. That's the that's the cool thing about these decision frameworks is if you show people what good looks like and teach them how to do it to a high degree of quality, you don't need a lot of documentation. I was working a couple of years ago at a, at a large energy company and we printed out their maintenance and reliability standards and business processes and it was three inches thick. And look, it was it was best, it was world-class practice, but they weren't doing it in the field consistently. In fact, one of our team members who had been working at one of their facilities for five years said, uh, I gotta tell you, I haven't I haven't seen these documents, which <laughs> wasn't good. But my point is that if you if you create simple and effective decision models for people to utilize. You don't need a lot of standards and business processes. You show them, here's the decision to be made, here's when to make it, here's how to make it, and go to it, right? And, and what I found is when you start looking at things, not through a task domain perspective, I use domain as, you know, because that's normally what we're, we're doing, we, matter, we do tasks. But I found particularly for leadership, if you start looking at your activities through a decision-making lens, then everything can become a lot clearer and simplified, right? So your processes don't need to be elaborate. They can be very simple. And, and you can utilize these decision frameworks to, to really add a lot of value and, and make more better decisions, which means you're gonna utilize your scarce resources better and you're gonna add more value um, on the same assets. Well, I hope um, I hope our listeners really understand the, the value of good decision making and and the efficiency gained through the processes you're talking about. Because we see a lot of stagnant approaches, whether it's to asset management or even just hitting your business objectives, and certainly using your approach of of putting in the correct rigor to understand the decisions and the options. Um, and the risks associated with those will, will help improve and make that, you know, a lot of companies say we need to be more agile. We need to be more agile and they don't really understand what that means. And everything you're talking about is exactly what that means. So um, Paul, that, so it, real quick, right before we wrap up um, what's new um, with you and your organization and, and do you have any uh, events you'll be attending or anything you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I've got to, I've got a few events coming up. There's there's um, Seattle um, conference coming up in in uh, next month that I'll be on a panel 
in. It's, so that's in October. Um, I, a couple exciting things um, for me is I do plan on starting my own podcast um, in the fall, and it'll be on more holistic and strategic asset management. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of good um, people and, and content in the maintenance and reliability space. And while that forms a good chunk of my own experience, I, I'm choosing to kind of um, work around kind of the maintenance and reliability space on some of those other, you know, larger and, and, and more leadership directed um, aspects of asset management. So that podcast will cover a lot of topics that, that perhaps some of your audience would, uh, would enjoy. Um, the other thing that I will be doing is um, uh, offering a decision management course um, that I'll be uh, putting on uh, uh, later this fall as well. So some of the stuff that you heard today and uh, um, I'm going to be preparing or delivering a, a, a half day training course on that that helps people understand more details and specifics around, well, how do you, how do you actually develop these decision frameworks and, and uh, why, why are they important? What can they can deliver and how do you go about doing it? Excellent. Well, Paul, it, we really thank you for taking time out of your busy day to talk to our, our uh, listeners here and give them some insight into how decision-making can help improve not only the value that they deliver, but the efficiency at which they do so. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, George and Joe. Appreciate it. Awesome. For Paul Doust and Joe Anderson, I'm George Williams. Go make tomorrow better than today.